Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, I am delighted to bring you a virtual roundtable discussion with three eminent communication professionals in three different countries, discussing the future of leadership, internal communication, professional development, and much, much more in light of our global predicament, the current pandemic. Jennifer Waugh, Brad Whitworth, and Neil Griffiths are all fellows of the International Association of Business Communicators, the IABC. The fellows' designation is the highest honour the IABC bestows on its members. It is a recognition of the significant contribution a communicator has made to their own organisation, the IABC, and the comms profession more generally. Just to put this into context, worldwide, only 88 communication leaders have earned this designation. Jennifer joins us from Vancouver, Canada. As well as being an IABC Fellow, Jennifer has been recognised with the top honours in her profession, Master Communicator. She is a storyteller and strategist with more than two dozen awards for strategic comms writing and consulting. She founded her storytelling and comms business Forwards Communication in 1997. And as you'll hear, Jennifer is passionate about the opportunity for stories to inspire action and reaction inside organisations. Brad joins us from California. He is a senior communication and marketing executive with 40 years experience in Fortune 20 high-tech financial services and association management. A renowned thought leader, lecturer and author, Brad has led global internal and marketing communication programs at HP, Cisco, Hitachi, PeopleSoft and MicroFocus. Brad is also a former broadcaster, and I think you'll be able to gather that from this conversation, and a past board chairman of the IABC. Today, he is a senior consultant with the employee comms platform, SMARP. Our third IABC fellow joins us from the UK. Neil Griffiths is Global Communication and Global Inclusion Lead at ERM, the world's largest sustainability consultancy. Neil has worked in communication management for more than 15 years, with a focus on corporate comms and inclusion. Neil has held many leadership positions within the IABC. He was a member of its Global Communications Certification Council, chaired the 2018 World Conference in Montreal, and has received the IABC Regional Leader of the Year Award for his services to professional certification. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I bring you this roundtable discussion with Jennifer, Brad and Neil. So I suppose this conversation really is all about assessing what the impact of this planetary crisis that we're all living through at the moment might have on the way we work, the way we communicate, the way we lead our organisations. And I wonder if we might start with leadership first. And Jennifer, if if you don't mind me asking you straight off, have you seen this crisis impact 
leadership behaviour? And if so, can you give some examples, as much as you feel able to give examples without naming names, some ex real life examples of how that leadership behaviour has been affected? Sure, Katie, happy to respond with my observations. I have absolutely seen this pandemic affect how leaders are showing up as individuals and within their organizations. And, you know, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. I've, I've seen those who have been um, somewhat, somewhat disengaged, um, probably because of their own anxiety and their own worry as, you know, they're human, we all are. And so they're navigating a new space and are, and are filled with anxiety about that. And so in one client organization, for example, a leader has been particularly challenging to get on track with some messaging and to find ways to, to connect that aren't in person. This is not a person who's comfortable on screen, um, very gregarious in person, but that doesn't translate the same way. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, I have a client organization that is just warms my heart. The CEO was doing daily calls for about 4,000 employees uh, for a period of time, and he's now gone to weekly. And, you know, he he's broadcasting from his bedroom, and, and the bed is sometimes unmade, and the kids wander in and out. And he's always been a very authentic leader, but this has just shown a new layer to him that people are really connecting to and resonating with. And, you know, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but I'm not sure you can ever unsee the unmade bed, for better or for worse. Yes, we can't probably roll that back. Neil, do you have any observations on this? Because I know that you have an in-house role, so I'm sure you're uh, advising and coaching leaders. Are they finding this quite challenging, this openness that they uh, have been thrown into, thrust into a sort of a different way of, of engaging with their people? I think you, you put it exactly right. I think what, what we've seen here is that leaders have been forced into doing things um, in a way that perhaps they, they might not have wanted to before um, or thought that they didn't have time for before or, or what have you. I mean, and that's not necessarily the, the case for ERM. I'm, I'm thinking more broadly here. This is a, a sort of a, a trend I'm picking up on, I guess. And I, and I think what it's offered is an opportunity to really test new ways of, of communicating and, and some of the suggestions that comms teams have perhaps been making in the past. Things like uh, video messages, things like podcasts or, or blogs. I think, you know, we've, we've seen a rise in some of those things which, you know, aren't necessarily new to us, but for many organisations will be the first time that they've they've done that. So, um, and I, so that's kind of where I've seen the the behaviour changed in a communication sense because they've they've needed to do things in a different way. Um, and and many people, you know, just to reference some of the things that that Jennifer just talked about, doing this in ways that might not feel comfortable or um, in ways that are incredibly personal. I mean, it's in, in some cases, you know, you're seeing the the decor choices of, of those leaders and, you know, people. that's not something you really think about very often. So it, I think it's been really, really interesting to see how that's that's how that's happened and how people have, have started to show up in different ways. If I can interject or if I can add to that, Neil, one of the things that I'm passionate about as a storyteller is the way that we connect to sensory factors in storytelling. 
So the way the, the stories that you remember in your life, chances are, are imbued with sensory elements, <clears throat> the smell of a campfire, the, the, the way a food tasted as you ate a luncheon and heard a keynote or something like we, we have, that's what wires into our brains. And so this additional layer of knowing what bedroom linens, uh, you know, a CEO's home might have, or what color walls they prefer, or even what clothes they show up in when they're not necessarily in a role, I think really makes a deeper impact. I would just say on top of what you guys have said that I think this is the great equalizer in many ways that some of this hierarchical um, strategy and mess that we've gotten ourselves into over the years where uh, there was real separation from first line workers all the way up to senior leaders has been um, flattened just as we hope the uh, curve on the pandemic has been flattened. We're seeing the very human side of people and I think the best leaders probably exhibited some of that and it's really coming out. Others are being forced into that. Um, I, I think there are some implications on the communication side. I think there's been less reliance on scripts, less reliance on PowerPoints, thank goodness, um, less reliance on the communications team itself to be able to make these people be more human. I think we've um, helped them, we've encouraged them, we figured out the how best that they could use this but we've really also allowed them to step forward. And there is a part of me that relishes that because I think so often um, communications people have had to put together the briefing book and come up with the talking points and come up with this when a true leader could walk into a room and know exactly how to connect to an audience. And maybe they don't need us for all of those things that um, should be sort of second nature to a good leader in an organization. So I'm hoping for the best. And I think that um, I've grown up in tech where I think one of the beautiful things about many tech organizations is that there's no monopoly on where the good ideas come from. And so there has been a bit of more of an egalitarian culture in many tech organizations. And I'm seeing that sort of becoming a little bit more pervasive in other places as well. And let's hope it sticks. It would be lovely if it sticks. I had a CEO recently, in fact, she appeared on the podcast very recently, say that she could almost feel her organisation becoming more emotionally intelligent as a result of this crisis. Uh, you say you you grew up in, in, in tech, Brad. I mean, any reflection on the impact this crisis has had on how we're working? Because we had to struggle so much with presenteeism. You know, you had to be there to be seen to be working. All of that's gone. I mean, the way we've worked, working now is totally different, isn't it? Well, in some ways, the headquarters building has been replaced by IT infrastructure. I mean, what the platform that you're on, whether it's a video conferencing platform or some sort of a messaging platform, that is the new headquarters for your organization. That's the single source of truth. That's where you make the connections that may have taken place in the break room, that may have taken place in the hallways or in the, the cubicles that we have. Um, so I think tech has done a lot. I think we've all become more comfortable with a lot of video conferencing capabilities that are out there, uh, where before we did rely upon screen sharing and a lot of PowerPoints and the faces and the smiles and the reactions were secondary or tertiary communications. Now it's moved into a primary spot. And again, that's one of those where I hope some of that sticks and that we don't 
when we talk about we're going back to whatever the new normal is or that uh, that's one where it's like no no let's not come back to uh you know boring powerpoints and uh, you know people who are not visible or who keep their camera turned off this is a cameras on world from now on i love that yes, i love once that the hairdressers and barber shops show back up um, <laughs> i think right <laughs> One thing, actually, Neil, that I, I noticed you talking about, you haven't been using the phrase work-life balance to describe the world that we live in. You have a different phrase. And I wonder if you could share that with the listeners and why you've chosen that particular phrase, because I thought it was absolutely apt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, early on in lockdown, what occurred to me was that we were in a work-life collision because the the, the worlds that had so much space around them and you managed to sort of navigate yourself between each of those bubbles just all became one huge bubble and one messy bubble and I think it it's kind of thrust our the the, the parts that make us us um together in a way that we've probably never experienced before and I think there's there's several implications on us as a result of that I think one of the things that it will have given lots of people is the space to reflect on what's important and you know the to to pick up on one of the things that you said around presenteeism you know there's probably a lot of people who felt compelled to go into a, an office and being there in person who might now have seen that they can thrive just as well when when they don't go to the office and i think that that then creates more space for a, a bit of work life balance once we get uh, back into that sort of territory and I and I think the relationship with work is is probably going to change because of that. So you know my my hope in terms of one of the things that will stick is that the the relationship with work does does take that shift and gives people more space. Certainly, just to add to that, a couple of things. So as a consultant who's worked from my home office for the past almost. 20 something years, I will say that I appreciate it. So that adjustment hasn't been as great for me. Um, having two teens around who also need some homeschooling attention and other <laughs> support has been, but I've noticed more nuances in the way that people respond to the idea of working from home. So I have absolutely no qualms anymore about saying, I'm not available for a call. I have to take my dog for a walk at that time or I'm not available for a call, I need to help my kids. Whereas before I might couch that and say, I'm just not available then or something along those lines. And so I think there is a little bit more understanding of that real life balance, Neil, and I, and I hope we do move more toward that. The other thing I was going to say, just to build on what you said, Brad, to do with being on screen is that in fact, I feel a little more as we've gone on in this in this pandemic and this new way of working uh, and Zoom fatigue is has been acknowledged as very real, I'm feeling more, again, more permission to, if I choose, dial in on phone, not turn my screen on. It's exhausting. Uh, and we can't, nor should we be, nor should we expect ourselves to be on all day in that way that also allows us to think and reflect and um, when I'm on a screen, I think differently. My, my synapses fire differently than when I'm just listening or speaking, just speaking. I've said on several occasions that a lot of what we've been going through is back to the future. 
Um, and if you think about it, we are relying less on the written word in some ways. And I think part of that was, if you think about it, the storytelling did not start with the written word. It started as a very human experience. And so we're moving back in that direction, in part because we have the bandwidth to be able to get the message out to a broader audience using the technology. Before, it was the people that were immediately around you, whether you were the town crier or the you know person who had just come back from a trading mission to the Far East and gathered a group of people around a uh, crossroads. We now have the technology to allow people, whether it's a senior leader or us as individuals, to be able to communicate face-to-face -face, um, in that sort of natural way. And we do have the ability to be able to use our entire body. I mean, body language is going to become an important skill set. So in some ways, it's back in the future. The one thing I hope that we're able to do, though, to get over some of that fatigue is build breaks into things. Because um, this idea of, you know, I've got 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., 11 a.m. to 12 noon schedule is just crazy. I remember hearing an organization a few years ago that the default was if you were scheduling an hour-long meeting, it would only let you schedule it for 50 minutes. If you were scheduling a half hour meeting, it would only let you schedule a 25 minute block. So it gave you that break, both mental and physical, to be able to regroup and uh, be ready for that next round. So it can be exhausting, but I also think that's one where as we get used to it, we'll probably master that skill set and be the ones in some ways who may have to help coach our leaders and others in the organization on the best use of you know, the, all the technology that's available to us. I will say anecdotally in 30 years, I have never had so many meetings start on time. This is the new world of work. <laughs> <laughs> so the big question here then is, how do we help sustain the more positive aspects of this a cultural shift? Is it inevitable, unfortunately, that we might slide back? and lose some of that positivity? Are there some things that we can do as communicators to help really drive and sustain that change? For me, I think it rests on the extent to which our leaders have been changed by this whole process. Because I think all of the predictions that, that we might make around this are going to be really ultimately driven by what the leaders choose to do moving forward. So I'm... I'm confident that there are some leaders who have been massively impacted by this. I know in our organisation, we're really seriously looking at how we move forward and what we take forward in, in having been through this process into our sort of regular operations. But if there are leaders who, who kind of go back to their old way of thinking once we get back to a, a normal that feels a bit more like what we were used to, you know, and, and I'm speaking there about, you know, are people being productive when they're when they're not there physically? Um, you know, can we take a look at the um, the productivity levels on given days of the week and, and things like that? You know, if those behaviours come back and creep back into the organisations, then my worry is that that that's going to have an impact on on how much gets taken forward. And some of that will rely upon how people are being compensated. I mean, if the uh, whole scheme is to get back to producing revenue and this level of profit to be able to please shareholders, I think we're going to see a lot of pressure to move back to the, the same old, same old habits. Uh, I think, though, we are going to see a lot of people re-examining what their business is like. And even though we're going to get through the pandemic, 
at a certain point, maybe it's when we have uh, inoculations that will help protect us. Who knows when that vaccine will be around? We're also going to be dealing with an economic downturn, if not a worldwide recession. And we're going to be working our way through that as organizations and as individuals. So it's going to be a long time for us to be able to even consider things that are the normal, but the metrics, you know, what are people being judged on? How are they being evaluated? How are they being rewarded? That's going to be, as we all know, a driver of behavior in organizations. You know, we get the behaviors that we pay for. <laughs> Absolutely, Brad. Just thinking about that impact of what most commentators and economists are saying is going to be a deep global recession. I've heard you talk about this hollowed out organisation. I just wonder if you can explain what this means in practice and some of the implications it might have indeed for us as, as communicators. I heard years ago a guy by the name of Ray Miles, who was the dean of the uh, business school at the University of California in Berkeley, give a discussion about the hollowed out corporation, the networked organization. The whole idea was that at one point, bigger was better, total vertical integration was it. You acquired all of the pieces of the value chain that you needed as an organization to thrive and survive. And he said, as an example, think of the movie studios in their heyday in the 1930s where they owned the actors, the actresses, the movie sets, the, the big studio lots, they owned the theaters, they owned every part of it. And now when you think about the movie industry, the, the lots are gone. The movie chain theaters, not like you can even go to the theaters these days, are not part of the same network. In fact, it's a group of freelancers who sort of come together, they form a team, and they do a magnificent job, we hope, and then they disband. Maybe they come back for the sequel if there is one. And I think what we're going to see is a lot of organizations that start looking at that. And we've seen some of that. It means what are the core elements of that value chain that your organization delivers? And then how can you find others with whom you can partner, outsource, network? You know, what, what are these uh, bonds that tie you to other places? I also spent about a dozen years in strategic alliances when I was working at um, Cisco, and they mastered the skill set of working with other organizations. It's like, if you have this and we have that, what if we brought it together and do that? So a lot of reliance, I think one of the, the beautiful things about COVID and the pandemic is that we're learning about reliance on others and how much we miss that social interaction. Maybe the same thing will happen organizationally and we'll realize that we don't have to do it all ourselves. We need to partner with people to be able to make things happen the right way. So I'm, I'm looking forward to um, a time when Hollowed out is not necessarily a bad thing. It actually means that we're going to be doing business in a new way and partnering and finding ways to accomplish the same goal, but it doesn't mean it's all on my shoulders. To your point, Brad, is, is that in addition to leadership shifts that I hope will, will stick in place, I've felt instinctively from the beginning of this that, that this is our time as communication professionals that never before have we had such an opportunity to help organizations and help communities move forward in really, really meaningful ways or in, in differently meaningful ways than we've ever had before. What I hope is that for at least a period of time, if not for longer, that we can hang on to that ability to influence and shape the way our organizations value the work being done, value the people doing it, that we can remain a part of that 
of shaping that messaging because we've shown ourselves to be an essential ally during a time like this. And I just wanted to point out as a sort of a background that, again, with my passion for for storytelling, if we look back, crises are the stories that we pin ourselves to as humans throughout history. And so that layers on to, again, our strength as communication professionals to help uh, round up that story, reflect it back, and use it in, in the best ways that storytelling can be used. I, I suppose the, the, devil, the devil's advocate question in all of this is, if this pandemic is going to create some real economic challenges in terms of, you know, income downturn, cost reduction, on our organisations. We're already seeing gig workers rise in the UK. I think there's almost 5 million of them in the UK. I tried to find some numbers around them for the, in the States. And I think what people are saying in the States is actually it's quite hard to count gig workers, but a lot of people have these side hustles. As host of the Internal Comms podcast, is it even relevant to be talking about internal communications going forward because our audiences are so much broader than the very traditional, what we call in the UK FTE, but the full-time equivalent employees on the payroll. I've been an advocate for the longest time of this uh, y'all come philosophy, which is if someone is doing a role in an organization or for an organization, they deserve to be able to be plugged into the information that is in that organization. And it doesn't matter what color their badge is, how many hours they work. It really focused more on their need to get the information they need to do the job. And unfortunately, as communications people, I think we have uh, often followed the rules that the lawyers have sort of thrown at us, which is if you treat someone who is not officially a full-time employee as if they were an employee, they could come back and sue you because you're treating them as an employee, but they're not an employee. They could ask for benefits and pay and all sorts of other things. I've also run across leaders who say, forget that. I'm going to ignore that counsel and instead, you know, let everybody know. I think what we're really going to find out also is that a lot of people we need to start thinking about in different persona. Um, you know, the just because someone has that full-time role in that position doesn't necessarily mean that their information needs are more or less or exactly the same as somebody else who has the same title, or compared to that contract person or the consultant or the side person who is not necessarily as wedded to the organization legally, but is playing just as important a role. In fact, I've spent a lot of time in the strategic alliances part of things. In some ways, um, that arm's length legal distance that you have between two organizations where everything is codified requires even more communication than does a standard full-time employee who's there for the, the long haul. So um, I tend to think that the lines were fuzzy between internal and external before. I think they're going to get even fuzzier. And we're going to have to move to this model I've talked about for so long, which is um, instead of thinking of sender-centric communication, which has been our forte for so long, we have control of the information. We know how to push it out through which channels to get to. We need to turn the model upside down and talk about receiver-centric communication, where the person who is on the receiving end of things is the one who decides, I need this, this is what I need, 
And I go back to, I don't really care whether they have, uh, if they're a star belly snitch or a non-star belly snitch, as Dr. Seuss would say, I don't care whether they have a tattoo or not. Let them decide what information they need to do their job as opposed to us playing God or goddess in running our organizations. Neil, do you have reflections on this? Do you have contractors and, and, and people like that in your organization that are part of the workforce, but not officially part of the workforce as employees? Yeah, absolutely, we do. And, you know, it, it, responding to your question, I was just sort of thinking about a lot of what Brad was saying. I, you know, there's always going to be groups inside the organization that, you know, we need to hear something or we need to engage or motivate um, to mobilize, a, you know, a, a, that group or a series of of groups of people in in order to advance the strategy of the organisation. I, I I think that that is a, a constant. Um, I think the shape and the the nature of those groups are going to change. Um, you know, very much in line with what Brad was saying. And I think as as internal communication professionals, we need to keep listening. Um, I think we need to anticipate and represent the needs of those varied groups um, and and make sure that our leaders are really fully aware of what those needs are um, and and how they can be accommodated. I mean, I, I think that there's there's a lot of validity in what Brad says there about you know really solidly understanding what the uh, what the receiver is all about and and sort of having that optionality. but i I, I don't think we've we've left behind the the need to really be that bridge between where the organization is heading and and where the the people are and how we help them get to the point to which we need them to get if that makes sense and certainly that's the case for us we have a number of more flexible employees in addition to the traditional FTE so that presents a challenge for us for sure. I work with a client organization who two and a half years ago went out to tender looking for freelancers slash consultants who who were interested in making a long-term commitment to that organization. And so we, uh, a colleague and I responded to the RFP and were successful. And so there were a team, there was a team of say six or eight of us who were brought on all at the same time. We were onboarded in a, an adapted uh, orientation model and um, and we have a three-year renewable contract, uh, and they've been very clear that they, in many ways, imagine us staying on with the organization longer than many of them may. We are all long-term uh, contractors, consultants, et cetera, so we're not looking to move on to anything else. And in men- in some ways, they made a conscious decision to invest in that sort of history-keeping uh, and then they've embedded us in large projects where we can sort of work fairly independently within the organization and then touch back in with the communications, uh, the the on-site, as it were, uh, communications team as needed. But I suppose with the workforce changing in that way, the side hustlers, the gig workers, the contractors, the freelancers, is it still relevant to talk about 
you know, to drive for loyalty, to drive for retention, to drive towards a really solid, reliable, uh, attractive, engaging employer brand even when you've got contractors that might hop around between a sector and work for many organisations that are all competitors of each other. Is it still relevant to think about loyalty, retention, employer branding in that world? I think it's a great idea to be able to define a culture. I mean, when you go to work for an organization, is what does this place stand for? And all the stuff that we talk about when it comes to employee engagement is how closely and comfortably do I feel tied into what this organization is doing, where it's going, what it stands for, what the social norms are. And I think that will be a critical part. Um, it may determine whether you want to sign the contract and whether you want to be there as a full-time employee, how do you want to engage with this organization? So uh, while on the one hand, it becomes more difficult to define, and I think sometimes when you're not all living under the same roof and you don't share those moments of passing in the break room or, you know, let's go grab a bite to eat as a small group, some of that is going, it's going to put even more of a demand on communications people to help define, refine, communicate elements of the culture. I think it also is incumbent, and I've said this for a long time, I think communications people have gotten this assignment, oh, you know, go out and define the culture and tell everybody what it is and make sure people adhere to it. And leaders often abdicate their responsibilities, which is to help define it and also to behave that and reward and recognize people who are showing off the best of the culture in action. And so I think what we're going to have to do is make sure that we're really on top of our game when it comes to what sort of organization is this, what does it stand for, um, is that the kind of behavior you want, senior leader, or is it that? Because we can help recognize that and, and, and spotlight it because you're going to have to hold up for this bigger world of the everybody this is what we all stand for. And um, it, it's, I think that's going to be one of our major jobs in the future as communications people to <clears throat> help make the leaders successful in, in installing, in enriching and bringing to light. the. I, I think, Katie, you're right to suggest that some of those things that we've been heavily involved in in, in years past, if you think about employee engagement as a a multi-year process that you you know you you build over time and um, and strengthen. I, I think in a gig economy and where you've got a bit more of a turnover in terms of the people coming in and out of the organisation, some of those things are going to be challenged, um, and some of those models won't really work the same way. I think some of the things that are going to stick though are to, linking to to what Brad said, things like purpose um, and having a strong a really strong sense of what makes you what you are as an organization because attracting talent in the first place to come and work with you some of those things like a strong sense of purpose um, a really strong and consistent internal brand that that aligns with your external perception i think those things are going to really matter and i think a lot of what brad was just talking about there is is kind of along those lines because you still want to be able to get the the best people in the door and and those are the things i think that will make a lot of difference to those people whether you know when they're choosing between gig a and gig b absolutely now i couldn't couldn't agree more jennifer you said you know this has been our time to really shine and, and step forward in this crisis 
And I wonder if we could dig into that a little bit more. I mean, I don't know, is it too soon to make any substantive predictions about the long-term impact of this crisis on internal communications? It, it might be, but in terms of our time to shine, I'm just thinking just in terms of listeners who might be tuning into this, what should they be thinking about doing next? How can they make the most of this opportunity to drive both themselves and their their discipline and their function forward? I think this is a great time for all communications professionals to do a little bit of self-examination and figure out what skill sets they need to build for the future. And it may depend upon the organization that they're working with. It may depend upon their own, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And some of that future is a little fuzzy for all of us at this point. Um, But this is a time to invest in that reflection, the self-reflection. The other one that I think is a universal truth for mm, all communications people is we need to all get better on that metrics side of things. I think the ability to be able to prove that what we're doing is having an impact on our organizations. And also, I think the other piece that comes with metrics is the ability to sell your ideas and with that yourself to whether it's a client, whether it's a leadership team, whether it's colleagues, whether it's that potential new employee is an important skill set that has not always been a strength of communications people. So to become more familiar with and more comfortable with the the world of numbers that are around us, you know, we we've sort of been thrown into the middle of this crisis, and our you know best practices have, have worked marvelously. And to be able to continue to be a valuable player, we're going to have to be able to continue to prove our worth. And some of that is going to be able to speak the language that most of the business world counts on, which is numbers. I would agree with a lot of what Brad said said there. I mean, I'm, I always um, see those sort of headlines and the... Um, you know, the bold statements that are out there in times like these where they're saying, you know, everything's changed for us and this is, you know, this is our moment and that sort of thing. And don't get me wrong. I, I really hope that that's true. And I hope that we we are transformed as we we come out and on the other side of, of the pandemic. I, I always try and remember those people, though, who see something like that and think, oh, gosh, well, why hasn't why haven't I seen that in my organization? And what about me? Um, that didn't happen for me. And I think for a lot of people, this will have been a rare moment in the spotlight, and and that's fantastic. But there will be a whole heck of a lot of people out there as well who, working in organisations where they have perhaps continued to play a more supporting role because the the functions that tend to take over have done so, and and you know the the leaders and 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 functions that have also stepped up might have taken a bit of the spotlight away. So I do want to make room for the people who haven't really gone through any kind of transformation in their organization. But it, I like Brad, I mean, I think that measurement is is critical, absolutely critical as a as a strategy of consolidating some of the gains that people have made during the pandemic. And I really hope that people have been measuring the heck out of their work over the past few months, because we really need to be able to demonstrate what's happened as a result of doing what we've done you know if if leaders have been communicating more if they've done things in new ways we need to be letting people know well what's happened as a result of that you know what's what's changed what was it before what is it now that whole point around listening 
and being the the eyes and ears of and the conscience of the organization i think is hugely important more perhaps more now than it ever has been to build on what neil said i think there are many organizations who are saying that we can't survey employees now they're under a lot of stress and and the numbers that we would get back would be really sad on on a number of accounts and uh, i would counter that this is the perfect time to be doing that metric assessment and coming up with some bad numbers because then you can only show improvement from that but this is the baseline and you know uh, i i think the other thing that uh, sort of ties in so much with what jennifer was saying too is in moments of adversity communications people shine through and when i just read a a story from a winemaker in i live in wine country who told a marvelous story he said and this is a trying time for small businesses like the one i own however when i think that my grandparents without a cent to their name got on a boat a century and a half ago and went to another country staked out a claim and built a farm and then the us government came along and decided that where they had that farm they were going to create a lake so through eminent domain they took away the farm and he said my my father's home is now under 100 feet of water um and all the vineyards that he had planted and yet we persevered so i think one of the positives of this is that we shine in moments of adversity this is definitely a tragic occurrence around the world but this is also a call for all of us to get through this move on and to help create that next phase that next chapter in our lives you know um brad i've been reading uh about something called third quarter syndrome which refers to it's the studies that have been done on on for example scientists that work in antarctica for long long periods of time in isolation astronauts and others who again who spend unusual amounts of time in isolation and what what has been observed that is that may be mapped on somewhat to this these coronavirus times is that people who experience that isolation get to a point where in fact they want to experience it again so for those who go those who spend long periods of time in the antarctic those who who pursue careers in aerospace and one could argue they pursue those careers knowing that that's a factor that uh that isolation is a factor in the work that they will do but for those of us who have not pursued careers where isolation was was going to be a factor in fact for those of us as she gnaws on her fingernails as an extrovert who are who are struggling a little it's interesting to think that that this may be something we yearn for that this period of time for reflection this period of time of stripping away some busyness some um some of the elements that we were filling our lives with that perhaps are emerging as not as high priority may result in a more a deeper value shift than we might know even at this time and i really think that that post covid we will see profound differences in the way people engage with each other in the way they work in the pri- their priorities on the environment in the way they think about travel and workplaces and and communication professionals professionals are going to need to steep that into the way we approach our work and our messaging with our organizations and, and i think we need to really be on top of what people are, are, are feeling 
right, Jennifer, you know, I, th- I think flexibility as we contemplate return to the workplace, for me, flexibility is is critical. And I think that a big part of our role is going to be helping our leaders not jump to the wrong conclusions, that, you know, that, that we remain open-eared to the the, the conversations that are happening and and that we don't let people make assumptions because for me I think that there might be I'm doing a lot more work now in the in the diversity equality and inclusion space and and just the 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 breadth of issues that come up when you start thinking about accessibility um and you know the different needs people have you, it's not a one size fits all. So for internal communication professionals, it's going to be absolutely critical just to keep listening and and make sure that leaders are really aware of all the issues that are at play. I just wonder whether you guys have got any reflections on something that, that I was thrown into a few days ago. I was asked to speak about imposter syndrome and we've talked about how internal communicators have been thrown into the spotlight. Some have, some have. And it, it surprised me, the hundreds of people that joined this webinar, to hear about how to tackle imposter syndrome. This feeling that we're not quite good enough, that it's all a little bit of a charade and we're wearing a mask and somehow that's going to be at some point ripped off and underneath everyone's going to discover that we're really a fraud and a phony and we don't know everything that we are, are supposed to know. As, as people with huge experience and wisdom about what you do, I'm guessing you never suffer from imposter syndrome. Maybe you did early in your careers. Have you got any advice or guidance for people who might be feeling that imposter syndrome creeping up on them? I still feel imposter syndrome every day. <laughs> Maybe not every day. I felt it showing up this morning. I think it's sort of wired into many of us. And at the same time, I, how do I quash that? How do I move forward with confidence? I know that I have um, a network, a tribe, a community of people to rely on who, who are all out to make each other look good. I really do know that and to, and to show up well. And I know that I have an, I have experience to draw on and whether I'm a few decades into my career as I am, or whether I'm a few minutes into understanding a client's particular problem or industry. I have that few minutes experience or I have that three decades experience. And I guess where I've learned to navigate that is to just is to 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 really give value to my experience and my ability to listen and bring that forward. I think to some degree, everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. And even those where I'm not worthy of being in this group around senior leaders, they're probably senior leaders who are thinking, I'm not worthy, I don't have the experience. In fact, one of the best leaders that I ever worked for uh, came to me and said, he said, I grew up in the finance world. I don't know that much about communication. I'm managing you as a communications person, but I expect you to manage yourself and help me manage you. So I think, there is that internal reflection and a willingness to admit that you don't know everything, but you know some things and to partner with and rely upon others. I also think a little bit of it is like um, Olympic judging in the good old days, which is you throw out the high scores, you throw out the low scores, and you sort of see where things fall in the middle. And if you're getting feedback from all those around you that, hey, you know, you're great. Um, the, I would say that it's, you're above that midpoint somewhere. 
Um, maybe not at the top, and you shouldn't be walking around as if you own the world, but you also shouldn't be so depressed that you consider yourself all the time at the other end of the spectrum in the dumps. So use those external metrics, those um, sounding boards, that, that network of people that you need to build around you anyway, as a good way to make sure that you're not the only one thinking a certain way and that the real world is probably kinder to you than you may be to yourself in those moments yeah, of I doubt. I think we could probably do an entire podcast as to why people might have been driven to the, this point of imposter syndrome because of what they've experienced as communication professionals. There's probably any number of things that make people think that. But one one thing that I've picked up on over the past 20 years or so working in this space is that a lot of the time, people don't know what they don't know about great communication. And, and it's really on you to show them that. And, and that works both ways with if you're feeling imposter syndrome, I think, because one, you probably know more than they do. And two, it's a great way of showing them the ropes and, and being able to flex your, your comms muscles. So I think, you know, that's one one perhaps bit of reassurance that I would give anybody that feels that going into a room. I'm going to apologise for this because it's quite a pedestrian question, but I'm just fascinated. We've talked a little bit about how we're connecting via the screen and the importance of having the camera on, but sometimes also turning it off and giving ourselves a break. And when, sometimes when you're just listening, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of radio. I always say the, the pictures are better on the radio. So actually, I can understand why sometimes we want to turn the camera off and really, really listen but what happens in a world, and it's certainly the world we're living in for, for quite some time, where we can't all get in a room together and have face-to-face -face communications in real life. And we know for all our experience that face-to-face -face communication is the richest, most powerful form of communication. I just wonder if you've got any reflections on, on channels and ways of connecting in this, in this it's world. getting behind what makes face-to-face -face the the success that it is. I mean, in every organization I've worked in, face-to-face -face has been the most um, valued and the, the most effective means of communicating. So I think what we need to, to consider is, you know, what is it about that that we can replace or replicate in a in a more virtual setting because I think the need is going to remain the same to have that connection with an individual or a group of individuals but I think what we'll see is is just a, a switch in format I you know I think flexibility again is a word that that occurs to me here because I think we're going to need to allow people the the space to choose what they're comfortable with and not making any assumptions about being on camera and and that sort of thing but i think it, it's really getting behind what makes the face-to-face -face so effective and, and trying to figure out different ways of doing that i think too that when we think about those meaningful connections they almost always stem from shared experiences and it's harder to share experiences on a screen but no less important and so, again, I think it overlaps into, into life and into work and into all sorts of areas. So we will have to work harder at creating those, those shared experiences. And sometimes they will be big and sometimes they will be small. I know on a personal front, my teenage daughter is graduating high school and missing out on all of that. And it's heartbreaking to watch. But 
the school has been amazing in creating this virtual graduation. And um, as parents, as a parent community, we've, we've gotten behind it because it is such an important rite of passage. Brad, I know you organized a, a virtual birthday party for your wonderful wife, Peg. And those kinds of, we can't let those things go by. On this past weekend, I hosted a virtual memorial service for a dear friend who passed away a year ago, which was a very strange and foreign thing to do. And I had no idea how people would show up for it. But, and I don't know if it, it absolutely doesn't replace the ability to hug each other and remember in person, but we have to find ways to struggle through the strangeness and the slight discomfort and the squirminess of being on screen with each other. And in the case of a virtual memorial, crying on screen together in order to build those shared experiences and go forward with those. And I'm going to call this the warm-up act for what's to come. Maybe I've hung around the tech world for too long and you see things about augmented reality, virtual reality, but I have seen things um, demoed and in labs and on stage where, for example, telepresence, which is a Cisco product, um, can actually be 3D and holographic. So instead of a two-dimensional screen where I'm seeing a very, very flat image and only a, you can project an entire person's body um, on a stage and they can almost be in the room, although you could jam your fist and arm through them so it's not quite the same but i think we're going to start moving toward things where it will increasingly approach the encounter that we have when we are physically in the same room so that the tools that we're using today are you know sort of the, the baby steps toward getting comfortable with technology that will augment our ability to be multiple places. And when you think about it, uh, I was thinking about uh, sort of the, the road warriors in businesses who pro, you know, were so proud of themselves because they'd flown this many gazillion miles and you know, sort of gone through. Is that going to be something that we want to emulate in the future? Or what about that person who can have a meeting with a group in Europe and then turn around and be in the U.S. and then be with a group in Asia Pacific all within the same you know, 12 hour period. And if they can find a way to be able to have that presence that we are missing when we have to watch it in this flat 2D world today. Um, I think things are going to change. And this is one of those where I, I hope that technology can be our friend and bring us closer together. The tough part is I, have, I haven't figured out how they're going to do the augmented reality virtual hugs, because I think that human touch aspect and the shaking hands or you know, elbow bumping or whatever is the norm, we do miss that touch aspect. One of the questions I'd love to ask before our time um, wraps up is about another type of organisation, because I know, obviously, you're all fellows of the International Association of Business Communicators. And I'm I suppose this is a personal question as well, because I've just been elected to the International Executive Board. So I'm very keen to know your thoughts on this. Could this pandemic also impact our voluntary not-for-profit and membership associations like the IABC? And if so, how were those organisations needing to change anyway? So it's a very big question, but because you're all fellows of the association, I couldn't not ask you this question while I've got you all on the call. I think it's a huge and exciting opportunity. I really do. 
I think, and this is this is anecdotal, but just from chatting with a few chapter, region, and international leaders involved in recruiting volunteers for their relevant jurisdiction, what I've heard anecdotally is that people, that they're getting a good response to calls for volunteers. Now, the challenge of recruiting volunteers that has been in place for the last couple of several years related to balance, related to virtual connections, all of those things still remain. But from what I've heard, several of those bodies have been pleasantly surprised by the response they got for calls for volunteers for next year's boards. Um, so on the volunteer front, I think that's an opportunity. I think it will. we need to support chapters and regions and international in terms of how to find new ways for volunteers to, to connect because it's not going to be the same. But that could be a really interesting sea change for IABC. From a professional development point of view, I think there are lots of opportunities. I'm eagerly watching to see how others lead the way in that regard and we can learn from it and and move on. I, <laughs> I, I've always described myself as thigmotactic, which uh, is a term to describe walruses, <laughs> which I'm feeling like now in, in this pandemic uh, isolation, but um, which means requiring the warmth of touch to survive. And I need it. And so IEBC is a, it has a big hugging culture. And whether you hug or not, uh, it, is very, it has been very much about that face-to-face -face time. And uh, I know we're all missing that. And again, trying, trying eagerly to find new ways to, to do that. And I'm loving what I'm seeing all over the world within our IEBC community of people finding ways to connect, setting calls regionally and on specific topics and, hey, jump on this call on a Sunday morning or a or a Wednesday and and just connect and chat. And it's it's the, the hallway conversations that we all love about IABC. We're facing a global pandemic. And I think one of the things that has uh, strengthened IABC is that international in its name. And the fact that you can reach out to people that you know in Italy and find out, you know, you guys were the epicenter, what's going on there? Hey, Hong Kong, tell me a little bit about what's going on with the pandemic in your part of the world. So as communications people, I think the network that IABC provides, whether it's in your own local community or on a global basis, is going to be a powerful asset to you as a communications person going forward. I would also say that one of the basics that I've always said IABC delivers, there's sort of the give and take aspect of things. You want to take away great professional development. You want to take great skill sets. And I think IABC continues to deliver on that front. But I also think that there's also this giving aspect of giving to yourself an important skill set that IABC can provide, which is there is no better place to practice the art of management than in a volunteer organization like an IABC. You as a volunteer leader in IABC, whether you're the programs development person for a local chapter or you're serving on an international awards committee, there's no better place to practice your management skills in I'll call it a relatively low risk environment long before you'll get the same opportunity to do so in a corporate or a governmental setting. And you, know, you as your own you know, driver of your professional development, your skill set, the where you're going with your career, if you wanted to build management skills, an IABC, and I'll give some credit to other volunteer organizations, are valuable places to be able to practice that I skill set. With, 
everything that Jennifer and Brad have said, um, 100%. The the international aspect is definitely what sets IBC apart from other professional associations around the world. I think that the other thing that I would add is around setting the bar. So if, and it's an if because I haven't made my mind up, but if we we're in a defining moment in communication in general, not just internal communication, but if communicators have, have suddenly gained in prominence, we've got a huge opportunity in front of us to seize, I think. And for me, that is very much about setting standards and, and helping people understand what great looks like. And IBC is so far ahead in that regard. I was involved in a piece of work a few years ago that established the global standard for professional communication. And even though that was that's now a, a, a few years old, the foundation that that gives IABC as a almost like a, a sort of a rod that goes supports the organization um, in everything that it does, whether that's content, whether that's how it supports the career development and progression, it, it's fundamental and um, it's so relevant even today. So certification is something that I think really matters and is a huge opportunity and, and again a differentiator I think for, for IABC because there there's no other organization that I know of in our space that is doing that as well and and for me that's what that gets down to and and here's the value proposition of a membership organization in today's day and age is that a, a professional association like ours should make it easier for the individual to do their job. So that is helping them be better, helping them understand what great is and providing opportunities for them to develop in that regard, but also advocating for great. So working with government, working with business, working with other organizations more broadly in society to help understand who are we, what do we do, and what value do we add to the organization. So that's that's my perspective on that. Just coming to the, the certification point specifically, Brad, did I hear you say on a podcast that there's actually been some research done to show that certification actually does increase the pay differential once you're certified? Or did I imagine you saying that on a podcast? It was part of a podcast. And yes, it is true. Now, I have to do point out on the metric side of things. That's a case of correlation and not cause and effect. Just because you're certified doesn't mean that you're instantly going to get that much more. But if you look at certified people versus non-certified people, with everything else being equal in terms of their credentials, those that have gone through the process, those that are certified by a body, do earn more. They're more likely to get promotions. They're more likely to be shortlisted when they're looking for that next opportunity than somebody who isn't certified. So there's definitely an advantage to an individual to look at certification in the process. I've also said that going through certification um, does something that we've been talking about all along and even tied into that imposter uh, syndrome conversation. You, When you take any sort of uh, an examination that's uh, broad and encompassing, you learn, oh, I've mastered that. I didn't have any problem with those questions. But these are the ones that sort of tripped me, tripped me up, and I wasn't quite sure. It's a great guide to where you want to build and where you need to build your skill sets. So I look at certification as the not only proving to the world and to yourself that you know something, but also that introspection, that learning what it is that I don't know and that I haven't yet mastered that I know that I need to if I want to become the great that uh, Neil was talking about. 
Just a PS on that too, as is the case for, for many of us who are already certified. One thing I love is that, and I didn't expect this because I went for a long time as an accredited business communicator, and I'm very proud of that certification. But one thing I love about IBC's certification model now is that even in this crisis year, I'm thinking about how do I get my credits? How do I stay fresh? And it's made me rethink keeping current and the need to keep current because I want to recertify, but also because that's important. And we all need to be doing that. We all need to be continuing to plug in to knowledge sources and keep ourselves relevant and current for ourselves, for our community, and for the organizations we work with. For your listeners, the certification process is not just a one and done. I've taken the test and therefore I am certified for the rest of my life. It's one where you have to recertify every year and prove through, in a sense, continuing education units, whether um, it is reading books or giving presentations or mentoring people or attending a conference or a workshop or a virtual seminar. You have to prove that you're staying up on top of profession, like Jennifer said. And that's an important skill set, I think, for all communications people. As we were talking about, this is a time when a lot is changing and we need to stay on top of it. So this is another tool to help you get through that with that ability to look at yourself in a mirror. I think this is a time also when communications people need to reflect upon the what it is that they know and learned from their prior life and what it is that they need to learn going forward. I'm thinking a little bit about audiences. We were talking about internal communication and communication in general. And I think we need to realize that people have been going through very, very different experiences in the last few months and will be in the future. And we need to be extraordinarily sensitive to who these people are and what they have experienced. I mean, there are some people who've been working like dogs on the front lines, been exposed to things that they never thought they would face in their day-to-day job. There are others who lost their job and were pushed aside, um, who've been struggling financially and emotionally to be able to be connected. And the basis for internal communications historically had been a one-size-fits-all, let's get the word out to everybody approach. And I think we need to be extraordinarily sensitive to the fact that our audiences, and by that discrete audiences, are coming from very, very different places. You're going to have people who are brand new to organizations who their only connection has been electronic. You're going to have people who have been there that wish it were like the good old days. And we need to be sensitive to the the very, very different sort of emotional and informational needs of our audiences going forward. I would say that I hope people have been good to themselves um, or as good to themselves as they have been to the organizations they serve. Um, And if if you haven't, then definitely give yourself some time and space to to recover and recoup and reflect. Um, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity in front of us in terms of some of the things that that may stick uh, because of the the situation we found ourselves in, but we're not going to be any good to anyone if we haven't um, recharged and and reset. So hopefully, just take a little bit of time to yourself. I think that plugging into our communities and and checking and rechecking the importance of those communities to us is essential. And 
I think there is also a, a, a window of time where we have an opportunity to um, make some adjustments. A friend, one of my best friends years ago moved cities uh, and um, I was in the new city and she left behind a huge community and family, et cetera, in the old city. And a few months in, I observed that I said, you know, you're, you're not getting out that much and you're not meeting new people. Do you want me to introduce you? Or, and she and I were seeing each other regularly. And she said, no, it's such a relief to not have the pressure of, 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 of feeling obligated to this community. She said, I feel this great gift of time to choose anew. And I, I think we have a bit of a window to do that and where it's going to be okay to come out the other side, whatever that looks like, with a different set of communities around us than we've had. Thank you so much, Jennifer. That's such a wonderful thought, I think. And, 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 and just so lovely to think that something positive can come out of, of what's been for many people, I know, a very tragic time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Neil, for a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. Well, thank you for putting this together. I mean, your work is amazing. I'm so glad to see you in the IABC leadership ranks. And uh, one of these days, we'll have you uh, part of that IABC fellows group, too, sooner rather than later, I hope. Yes, congratulations, Katie. And we're we're we know we're in good hands with you uh, with you in an IBC leadership role, helping helping steer things. So, thanks for stepping up. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. To find out more about my guests and our discussion, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom abcom .co.uk and you'll find the podcast section there. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. We've been giving our newsletter a little bit of extra love and attention during this crisis. It's where you'll find free resources, new reports, the latest on events and also updates on the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a shout out on social media or perhaps you'd like to blog about the show. And to help us become more discoverable for other IC pros out there that might find the show helpful, I'm told the best way to do this is simply to rate the show on iTunes. We have some great guests coming up, so you might want to hit the subscribe button. Jenny Field, president of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations here in the UK, and a very, very special interview with Roger Dupree, recognised the world over as the pioneer of employee communications and the author of 10 books, I think I've got that right, on communications change, corporate culture, I'm very much looking forward to sharing that episode with you. So all that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe, stay well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts. Mm-hmm.